Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. This is our first episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. <laughs> it feels so funny to say. Yeah, does it? <laughs> What's the acronym? YAG. <laughs> In Sweden, that's how they pronounce the, the hit show JAG, so it's not that weird. Oh, of course. No, it's not that weird at all. You're listening to your second favorite YAG. <laughs> Today, we are talking about Dazed and Confused, and we recorded this episode when we were Wire Dads, and I think this is probably what a You Are Good episode would sound like anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, because this has Sean Nelson in it. I was excited to participate in this largely because it was your first time watching Dazed and Confused, and there are very few movies where I'm like, yeah, I want to see how someone feels about something. Mm. I want to see how someone responds to this. And this was one of those, and you're one of the people I'm always excited to see uh, responses spout from. Yeah, and this was such a lovely experience for me because as I talk about in the episode, I really felt like this was going to be one of those like party movies. Mm. Not that those were always bad, but like, I feel like that was really a genre of the late 90s. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like Super Troopers or something like that? Old school? Well, starting with Can't Hardly Wait, I feel like there was a huge revival of teens party movies hmm. going into like American, American, not American Beauty. That wasn't a party movie, but American Pie was. American Pie. <laughs> American Beauty, legendary party film. <laughs> What wouldn't that be great? <laughs> you like Max? This, <laughs> this movie is a party for you. <laughs> Sarah, what should people listen for in this episode? I hear Carolyn has something exciting up her sleeve, perhaps. Yes, she has a special song. So this movie is close to my heart. I love you and Sean dearly. And so to spend more than an hour talking about a thing I love with people I love, it was the best. Hmm. I wanted us to do end of school year movies, and we are releasing this episode almost on the day that this movie takes place, which is very exciting. And if Pretty in Pink was about prom, then this is about, you know, kind of the week after prom. I hope that you're feeling released messily into the world like a scared freshman. Yeah. <laughs> you know a thing that didn't come up and I'm I'm sort of sad didn't come up considering the context of the show. Matthew McConaughey's dad died while he was shooting this movie. Oh. And he came back to that scene where they shoot in the football field where he says, you know, uh, L-I-V-I-N, that scene, mm -hmm. that sort of uh, iconic scene. He shot I think the day he returned from from his dad's funeral. Wow. That makes me want to see that scene again. But I feel like this movie is congruous with that reality in a way. Like these teens know that mortality is at the edges of everything they do. Yeah, for sure. In one way or another, it's coming to get you. Make out on a median. We're all going to die. Have fun. <laughs> all right, everybody. Let's talk about Dazed and Confused. <laughs> <laughs> This is what it's like being friends with either of us, by the way. <laughs> Someone's like, death. And you're like, thank you. I'm trying to eat some coleslaw right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Before we begin, I just want to say that I read and loved All Right, All Right, All Right, the oral history of Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. It's written by Melissa Meritz. We reference it heavily, heavily, heavily in this episode. I can't recommend it enough. Oral histories are hard. They're either great or bad. <laughs> 
and this book is great. I highly recommend it. If this is a subject you find interesting, please read Melissa Merritt's All Right, All Right, All Right. A couple more housekeeping notes. First, you can support You Are Good on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash youaregood. Uh, you can find us there and you'll get bonus episodes uh, relatively regularly, a couple times a month. This last one was a conversation between Carolyn, who produces the episodes, and Sarah. It was a lot of fun. We appreciate your support if you're able. If you're not, we're just glad that you're here. You Are Good is also made possible with support from Knack Factory. Knack Factory is a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine, but it does work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. Our guest today is Sean Nelson, who is a singer, a songwriter, performer, who is in the band Harvey Danger. He is now uh, Sean Nelson, who's a writer for The Stranger forever and ever and ever. Uh, He lives in Nashville now. He's a tremendous, tremendous person. I'm so happy that he's on the show. We have changed the title of the podcast from Why Your Dads to Your Good in as many places as we can. Some places it takes a little while to register, but we've changed on social media. So we're at Twitter and Instagram at You Are Good Pod. The, your pod player might take a minute to readjust. So please bear with us as, as it switches over. Yeah, we are You Are Good. So thanks for, uh, thanks for your patience and follow us on social media if you are not doing that already. I think that's all that you need to know before we go into this episode. Thank you so much for listening. All right, all right, all right. See, I I used to know that drugs and alcohol were such a big problem that they had to resort to neo-McCarthyism. God, don't you ever feel like everything we do and everything we've been taught is just to service the future? Yeah, I know. It's like it's all preparation. Right, but what are we preparing ourselves for? Death. Hey, guys, one more thing. Hey, this summer, when you're being inundated with all this American Bicentennial Fourth of July brouhaha, don't forget what you're celebrating, and that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning, aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes. Yeah! Man, it's the same bullshit they tried to pull in my day. You know, if it ain't that piece of paper, some other choice they're going to try and make for you. Yeah. Let me tell you this. The older you do get, the more rules you're going to try to get you to follow. (laughs) You just got to keep living, man. (laughs) L-I-V-I-N. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Sir, where are you talking to me from? So as you know, there is this place I go sometimes, and it is called Any McDonald's Parking Lot. (laughs) And in this place to which there are many entrances across America, there is always just enough Wi-Fi to video chat with the person you are doing a podcast with. And you can sit there for hours and hours. And if you don't get heat stroke, you'll do fine. If you want to be a gentleman, you can get something in the drive-thru on the way out. Well, it's nice to see you historically as friends on and off for years, there have been times where you have stayed wherever I'm living and when you do that, usually you will record your wrong about from a McDonald's parking lot. So this is the first mm-hmm. time I've been on the other side of recording with you in a McDonald's parking lot. It feels like seeing you from another dimension. Ah, it's like when you go to your mom's work and you're like, oh, my God, she smells different. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that's no man i remember that exactly 
<laughs> we are joined by one of our few repeat guests, my Mr. Sean Nelson. Sean, hello. Greetings from uh, sunny, rainy Nashville. Yay. Sean, we as we assigned this movie, but it sounds like this is a movie of some history with. Can you tell us what we're watching and what your history is with the movie? Uh, the movie is Dazed and Confused, directed by Richard Linklater, um, and it came out in, I believe, 93. I saw it at the Seattle International Film Festival at a midnight screening at that, uh, you know, in that year. And um, I, I don't so much have a history with it as, I mean, I wasn't in, involved in any way, except perhaps emotionally. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. But I was emotionally involved with it, and I've just, I've seen it a million times and seen a, sort of the cultural identification with it go from none at all to maybe too much to the opposite to now it seems like it's at a pretty healthy level healthily regarded sarah you had never seen this movie before can you walk us through what this movie is about and tell us what it was like to visit with it for the first time Okay, so Dazed and Confused is a movie I will come out and say now that I don't think I watched to this point because I understood it to be a movie about high schoolers having fun. (laughs) And I had very little fun in high school, and so I felt that it would make me too sad. But it didn't because I'm a fun adult now, and I feel okay about it. (laughs) And it's also, you know contains characters who also need to learn to have fun. It's not what I thought it would be. I think I expected it to be something more along the lines of like Road Trip, which frankly I Mm. also haven't seen. Um, And Noah has at least one great scene where a kid clog dances to run DMC. It's another Anthony Rapp film though. Anthony Rapp's in both of those movies. Wow! Anthony Rapp just shows up in the most interesting places and I think of him still as Daryl from Adventures in Babysitting so he'll he'll always be Daryl Cooper Smith yeah <laughs> this is so diminutive but he's rent boy in my head so that's he's a- <laughs> I don't think we know that Daryl Cooper Smith isn't Rent Boy. You know, I can see him moving. Although I guess Rent took place a couple years after that movie. But, you know, Rent and Adventures in Babysitting are both about going to the city. That's right. (laughs) But anyhow, this movie is about the last day of school in 1976 at a high school in Texas. And about the eighth graders who are now going to be freshmen in the fall getting hazed by the rising seniors and the kids having a day where just like, I think I went into it being like, and now they're going to (laughs) party and they're kind they're looking for parties, but it's like, they're going to have a big party. And then the parents come home and they're like, no party. And you're like, oh, are they going to move the party to somewhere else? Is this going to be about the pursuit of the punctured party? And it's like, no, we're just going to get in our cars and screw around and play some pool and get hazed. And the most plot that there is, I think, is the fact that Ben Affleck is as close as we come to a villain. He is a held back senior named O'Banion who really wails on some of the rising freshman boys they get a little revenge on him. And then we have a character named Randall Pink Floyd who spends the duration of the movie, which is about 24 hours, deciding whether or not to sign this form that his football coach wants him to sign, declaring that he will not party or use substances or smoke or smoke pot or, or drink during the next football season. 
I didn't realize how reading this book when they referred to the A story being Randall not signing that piece of paper, Pink not signing that piece of paper. I was, I was like, it never struck me that there's an A story in this movie. Yeah, I don't think there is. I feel like that's there. So if people ask what the A story is, they can be like, it's it's that. Next question. I mean, in the sense that it's a story. Maybe you just weren't pronouncing it correctly. It's the ass story. And it has Parker Posey yelling at kids, which uh, growing up, I was like, I don't really want to watch Parker Posey yell at kids. This isn't being sold to me in a persuasive way. But that, that part's fun, too. No complaints. The thing that I learned the most in this book about the making of this movie, which I think is legendary to people who know about the movie at this point anyway, is like it was such a struggle between Richard Linklater and the studio to make this movie. And he, he seems like he has what could be, if you were friends with him, like an annoying anti-authoritarian bent. Right. But like the movie itself is inherently anti-authoritarian. And even though there is like kind of a dad that's related to like a sea story in this movie, like trying to throw the party and not happening, but like there's no official dads in this movie, but the movie's full of bucking against dads, which is really fascinating. Mm. I'm really fascinated to know from you, Sean, like you were there when this movie didn't exist and then you were there to see it birthed into the world. Like, what was that like? <laughs> it was like any birth. It was traumatic, but, <laughs> but rewarding. <laughs> I think the important thing to keep in mind in, in sort of considering the film's creation or what it what it meant is to remember that Linklater's first movie, Slacker, was like the essential independent film in the very early 90s and the very early 90s was the essential time when independent film became even a term that anyone ever said or used in like in any context so mm. and that movie i don't know if you've seen that movie but it is fantastic in the sense that it's like it starts with this one person talking to this other person and they're walking through Austin and then they like their conversation continues and it's very discursive and exactly the kind of conversation you would have with people in college or grad school or whatever. And then some other people are walking the other way, you know, and they pass by and they all say hello to each other and then the camera follows the second people and they go into another discursive philosophical conversation that is both mundane mm -hmm. and hilarious and that's the whole structure of the film it's just conversations that kind of abut other conversations and i feel like i i get it in some way i've talked to many people who were infuriated by the way that movie was put together and its very existence at, at the time especially but it was just one of those cultural dividing lines like it was way more pre-slacker and post-slacker I mean, even the term slacker, its uh, validity ended in 1991 when the movie Slacker came out. But then people mm. kept using it all through the 90s, which is sort of how it goes. It's funny to think, <laughs> I feel like this is what you're leading to, but like Richard Linklater then followed it up with this movie, whereas like a Kevin Smith made Clerks and then yes. followed it up with Mallrats, which was probably a bummer to a lot of people. <laughs> with some of the same, many of the same cast members. Yes, yes. And people who are around, whereas, whereas this came out and like, did you go in expecting anything in particular? To me, and I think my, my sense when I went into the screening, which was completely full, you know, sold out at the Neptune Theater in Seattle, long may it run, was that everyone wanted to see what the guy who did Slacker did next, you know? Mm -hmm. And there had been some advertising about it that just showed that kind of 70s 
ness that was pretty funny then. It hadn't yet been totally worn out, but that was sort of the time when the kind of 70s revival was just getting started, that 20-year culture cycle where, you know, in the 80s, everyone did stuff that was sort of about the 60s, and in the 90s, it was the 70s, and now it's still the 70s or something. I don't know. I'm not a mathematician, but... um, it was sort of like he he had arrived as a as an interesting artist and now he had a budget to work with probably you know not a huge one but slacker was famously made for like $37 or whatever and this was what people would call a real movie were you disappointed or were you excited about what you saw i was thrilled i thought it was great i thought it was hilarious and interesting and involving and also there were many things that it kind of wasn't I guess there might be some sentimental moments but the thing where that Sarah was saying kept her from seeking the movie out for a long time this idea that it's like fun you know like graduation day kind of the the thing where the movie rides on the hedonism of the characters Mm -hmm. that's exactly not what it is even though there are some hedonistic characters mm-hmm. and stuff. It's way more like it is about that thing where you're like, fuck, I'm supposed to, I know I'm supposed to have fun. I don't know how to have fun. I've never had fun, but I'm in this car. So yeah, let's mm-hmm. go to the woods, the worst place in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, how, how, I mean, it sounds like you explain your expectations of the movie. Like what did you find rather than your expectations? You know, I really love movies that just like slow down and look at people for a while. I really liked the wrestler for that reason. Cause so much of that movie is like, what is this guy's day? Like, you know, what is it like when he goes into work and his boss is Todd Barry and he's, he's slicing deli meat for people. And like just watching someone like, wake up and like you know crack all their joints I I really think that like the way we get to know people is and to feel intimate with them as characters is to kind of just be with them over time and it felt like I don't know I also think that like the way directors work the way writers work the way artists work generally with the concept of teenagers is so interesting because you're like you're taking what you remember of yourself and you're like showing your ability to work with your memories of who you were who you wanted to be and you're maybe writing characters that are fixing who you were into who you wish you could have been like Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a great example of like a pure wish fulfillment character and I was looking at the script for Days and Confused and they actually describe Pink similarly to the way Edie McClurg describes Ferris Bueller, where like he just hangs with everybody. He's kind of in with all the groups. He's a righteous dude. Yeah, he's a righteous <laughs> dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't think that you can write a teen character as an adult who is no longer a teenager without putting some wish fulfillment in or without like overly mortifying your younger self, which I think we kind of talked about in The Squid and the Whale. Right. But like these characters just feel like they're allowed to kind of move around, not overly freighted with adult fantasy of what it's like to be a teenager. And they have a lot of dignity, too. And as you know, like dignity for teen characters is a big one for me. Like and I also feel like if another something that you could call an A plot, if you were pressured to name one, is just sort of the arc of Mitch the kid who gets paddled the worst and then gets to like make out with a girl and be in with the older kids and buy beer. And it's just, and there's no message. There's no like 
point where it's like, little man, you're growing up too fast. You shouldn't be buying beer. It's like, no, it's fun to buy beer. The end. (laughs) Also, the lack of trying to like have a point is very appealing to me. And we haven't even talked about Matthew McConaughey yet, by the way. A movie doesn't need to be more than the feeling of wandering around on a summer night and looking at people doing things. Yeah. Yeah. When Linklater was trying to get this movie made, Slacker was huge. And so there was like trust from movie studios, but there was no trust because they were like, it's great that you can make a movie that made us all this money, but there's no way in hell you can make that movie again. Mm. So he had to go in and, but he was like really savvy and he had to go in and be like, this will be like American graffiti or like a John Hughes movie. Mm. Like he had to like use those comparisons so people would understand what he was talking about. In, in this book, there's a journalist named Tom Junod says John Hughes movies were about people in high school sort of acting like adults Mm. one of the most beautiful things about Days and confused is that it's about kids it's not like there's a james spader Mm. character in the movie who is naturally sophisticated and evil (laughs) which i love about the movie and he goes on to say and this this applies to like why we love people love the mcconaughey character or even like the bad characters in this movie which is he says there's not a patina of sophistication about anyone in that movie the movie's villains are kid villains and you almost feel bad for them yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, whether or not you like or don't like or relate to or whatever, each individual character, and there are several that you kind of like wind your way in and out of sort of semi-identifying with them, but it's all so massively inconsequential, you know, like the, yeah. the and, and I think when you're a kid, it was probably less so then, but I don't know how much less so, but, you know, now if you're that age, you're like... I don't have time to go outside. I have to do my SAT practice test or whatever. Like, I just assume that, like, every decision Mm. you make is going to affect basically how much money you can ever earn in life. Mm. And that that seems to be drilled into infants and onward. And so um, this one is like they do stuff that you're not supposed to do, behave in ways that are not like approved of by society or whatever, but nothing really happens as a result, which is one of the great liberating things of actually going from your teens to your 20s is finding out that like, oh, it's, it's really up to you whether you decide to be that way or not. It's not like if you go and buy beer at the store, you're fucked forever. <laughs> which is the message you get. And it's different for different people and certainly race and class don't really enter into it in this film very much. But like, it's kind of a beautiful thing to, to see in the movies. Right. Like teenager dumb with low stakes actually feels pretty rare. rare. Like teens are always doing something. Don't just don't do anything. That's my message. <laughs> <laughs> so much of this movie is like, is about this battle between Pink and the football team and like the football coaches mm-hmm. and is he going to sign this thing or is he not going to sign this thing and again it has like an anti like an inherently anti-authoritarian feel because our hero is not going to sign it he might play but he's not going to sign it and it's funny that like I don't know I just stopped taking high school authority seriously way earlier like a lot of my teachers in in over two year period got in trouble for sleeping with students. Like there were like school shootings on a regular basis, not at my school, but like there were school shootings in the country on a regular basis. Like my assumption that like anyone was in charge or had a leg to stand on to like make you sign a thing (laughs) was Mm -hmm. long out the door. So like watching this and being like, oh, it's actually kind of quaint that the thing that they're fighting against is the idea that the high school has any authority whatsoever. But it also makes, it also makes sense because it's like, I also never played football or felt like like I never needed a coach to approve of anything I was doing. 
Right. Mm-hmm. You weren't you weren't the star quarterback. You surprised me. I know. You're going to find this very surprising. <laughs> I don't want to blow your mind, but neither was I. Um, <laughs> and yet, I still got something out of this movie. A plus. <laughs> it's the novelty element in the film, the way everybody is dressed and the music that's playing. But also, like, it is America in 1976. And the idea that, like, anyone would take that piece of paper that pledge, especially seriously, when, you know, like Gerald Ford was just getting comfortable in the Oval Office. And, you know, all the, like mm-hmm. and that starts off in one of the very first scenes where, you know, the bell rings and the teacher, I guess probably social studies or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. civics, you know, she gives that line about like, remember, we're all out here celebrating the country that only exists because, you know, a bunch of white men didn't want to pay their taxes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, it's funny and true and, and good for, you know, like a teacher to be saying that to a room full of kids in a public school. Mm-hmm. But it's also like that person could probably be destroyed today if they said yes. that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you could be too afraid of being controlled or it was I guess it was now an option Mm. to not be afraid of being controlled and you didn't have to be a let's levitate the pentagon kind of hippie there's a scene where Marissa Rabisi who's the beautiful red haired school newspaper student who ends up amazingly with Wooderson (laughs) is just talking to some people and she says something like I mean maybe the 80s will be great it couldn't get worse (laughs) (laughs) I love that yeah Yeah. and it's and I feel like this movie also shows a, a pretty nice amount of restraint in terms of making characters go wow blah 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 sure is happening back now <laughs> but like that is but those are the things people say about the time that they're in like when you're inside of a decade you don't really understand what's congealing around you almost until it's over and like what do you think she wants more or less of based on the world she's growing up in because i don't think she got what she wanted and this is also this movie and they reference this takes place at the start of the bicentennial summer, which seems like a time when America was really sucking its own dick. In spite of everything. (laughs) Can you blame her? (laughs) Sarah, what's your take on that? What do you think? I feel like you identify with her a little bit. Oh, sure. Yes. I mean... Yes, like <laughs> you are the school newspaper girl. <laughs> I am the girl who who needed to talk herself into trying to think about having fun. And then when I decided to have fun, like I really decided to have fun. Yeah. I imagine that growing up in the 70s, like being a high school student then might have felt a little bit like, oh fuck, we just missed it. Like the car just pulled away because the 60s, it never existed to the extent that it does in the self-mythologizing that people did immediately after the 60s, you know, wrapped up and we we called it a day, which I think happened after, really after Nixon left office, like not literally, but the long 60s. Because you lose a common enemy and then society can't really cohere in the same way anymore. And I I wonder actually if that's, going to be what what we see now that Trump is out of office like things are better like it's better to have a safe pair of hands on the wheel but like boy is he a forgettable guy can't even picture his face right I imagine like if you're a teenage character in the 1970s like you were a child during the time when people seemed really afraid of the youths 
for a second there. And when like people your age were part of a cultural moment that was actually like scaring the shit out of people. And now you're like a little bit scary. The way teens are always scary, but like you're not striking fear into the heart of Washington. And I think that would be a real bummer to like miss out on by so few years. But you are, you know, you're striking contempt in the heart of rural Texans, probably. <laughs> Which is also, I think, meaningful in that in that context. I, I think that those three, the Marissa Ribisi, Adam Goldberg, and Anthony Rapp characters are the, I mean, they're to me the really interesting ones. Mm. Of course, I like to imagine that I would have been in that car, too. And their friendship based on, you know, like, mutual working at the school paper, but also being kind of the school brains and being able to kind of dissect the things that are going on around them rather than just experiencing mm-hmm. them. And it's really great. But then really, there is this interesting moment of liberation for for two of them. Um, and the third one just has to make out with a young girl. But, you know, <laughs> Marissa Ribisi goes off with Matthew McConaughey, like this total, like, why shouldn't I do this thing that is going to end in, at best, in tears? You got to have some tears over something other than politics. But why not have the adventure? Like, you get the invitation and you either go or don't go. And she goes, which is, I think, great and really exciting. Right. But then Adam Goldberg's version of that is to actually fight back to the bully who's picking on him. And he just gets absolutely thrashed. (laughs) Yeah. It's a painful thing to see. As high strung as he is, is like, that guy sucks. He's horrible. He That guy <laughs> has been magnetized to me everywhere I've ever gone for at least 30 years. It's kind of great to think he's going to stand up to him and then he just gets beaten down. Mm. But that's also, speaking of ending in tears, like it probably feels better to have you know had your ass kicked by the bully than to cower in fear and say sarcastic stuff about him. And this is a movie about getting thrashed and then continuing. There's a whole chapter in this book about the meditation on like on the 70s piece. And that same journalist actually who I just quoted, Tom Junod, says, My generation was guilty of nostalgia way before they got old. I was class of 1976. When I think of my own experiences in the 70s, it's like Happy Days was on. Shanana was... Uh, was an act people my age went to and paid money for, even though it did not in any way memorialize their own time. American Graffiti was way more popular of a movie with people who graduated high school in 76 than in 1962. And they just talk sort of about how much of a lack of awareness, like of the significance of the decade versus like what the actual significance of the decade is, which Mm. that just has to be the case, right? Like you live in a time And then enough time has to go by in order for you to know what actually happened in that time. But by the time that Sarah knows and, and, and does every week in another show, by the time then you look at how the decade was actually remembered versus reported, um, you've got to do a lot of reconciling to find where the truth is in that. And even then you're lucky if you find anything that's close to being true. You can be nostalgic for anything with enough distance. And it's funny how like now I think we have, actually an outsized nostalgia for stories about like 1970s New York City Mm -hmm. because people were miserable at the time and complained about it constantly because it was filthy and lawless and terrifying and we look back on that and are like but the prices the prices right (laughs) yeah but you could buy a Soho loft for a (laughs) hundred dollars I mean I grew up watching Happy Days on Laverne and Shirley and having no idea that the 50s and the 70s were even a particularly different time, I guess felt like they were just smashed into 
Like, why were there all these shows about people in poodle skirts coming out in the 70s? It's hard for a 10-year-old to piece together. And looking at that nostalgia, it feels like that's the 70s, like, clinging to this, you know, post-war boom period that, like, started draining away, like, as soon as it felt full because it was the kind of post-war prosperity that we defined our national character based on and that was intrinsically unsustainable. I would say whatever else the 60s were, they were also the time when like the fraughtness of American life and government and foreign policy and domestic policy and all of that stuff just couldn't be contained by lies anymore. And we had to it like mm. and so it became this incredibly you know roiling tempestuous thing although who knows? Because my idea of that is based entirely on books and movies and records about that time. I, and that's where I think that sort of yearning for the past, for a simpler time, becomes not just this sort of... I think it's always attributed to a kind of laziness on the part of the people who feel mm -hmm. that feeling. But I also think that it... I mean, it serves a, a purpose, whether it's healthy or not, I, I, I don't know. But, like, you know, American Graffiti was this movie that, like nobody really expected to be especially a big deal but it was massively popular right. it was as much the revival of the the songs as it was about the you know the story mm. of the film i don't love that movie at all but that is why that movie's success is why happy days began mm. and so happy days was like the tv version of this movie that was already a tv version of reality wow. <laughs> And even had Cindy Williams in it. Right, exactly. A great singer and a great actor. <laughs> but, you know, like, it's probably not the case that that 70s show was that Daisy Confused begat that 70s show. But the mm. difference between those two cultural artifacts, like the voice of them, the intention of them, what they were about, were pretty, is pretty vast. That 70s show is like whatever, a, a, a mm. picture of a drawing of a photograph of a Xerox copy of Dancing <laughs> Confused. You know? I, saw, I saw recently somewhere online, I don't know if this is a real phenomenon or I saw someone complaining about something online. Those are two different things, I realize. But someone was talking about how some folks complain about how Big Mouth is ultimately a show that is problematic because it shows children going through sexual, sort of sexual exploration and stuff. And my immediate take on that is it's like I mean it's adults remembering childhood like these like what you're watching is a memory so like by the time someone is of tv or movie making age if they're going to make something that's faithful and has like real feeling in it it's going to be remembering a time that they are from right yeah. and so someone says in this book mm -hmm. which is so great like we spend the ages from 18 on trying to figure out what happened between birth and 18 like that's what we do which is so frustrating because it's like having been at a crime scene right. and being like yeah 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 get me out of here yes. i want to see the next thing and then you're like oh my god i have to try and remember that crime scene i didn't want to be at now like i don't remember i was trying to pretend i wasn't there ah and because your, your your parents still won't admit that it's true what they did to you. Or that, that a crime happened. Yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. <laughs> but what I love the most about this movie in particular of all in the genre is Linklater, like despite the fact that so much of this feels good to watch because of the, the feelings that it represents, it does not feel positively nostalgic at all. Like it doesn't feel like no. it's like, and those were the days like it sucks as much as it's great. And that's what makes it like feel 
as real as it does. Yeah, because everyone has to grow up during a time and like we have no basis for comparison. And like I would say now, like it actually sucked to grow up in the early 2000s because the fashion was terrible and we were going through this time of like national idiocy and paranoia because of the Iraq war. But on the other hand, the Internet was young and you could have a really weird live journal where you talked about Newsies fan fiction (laughs) without that really seeming to take place in the real world. And, you know, it's like ultimately all you're left with is a combination of like things that could be better and could be worse. And that's what history is, I guess. That's all history. Yeah, that's all all human endeavor. Sarah, you mentioned you mentioned one of my other favorite facts from this that has a link to the show is you mentioned Marissa Rubisi earlier. Mm-hmm. And in order to be on a movie set, evidently, you have to be over 18 or have a guardian. And so Marissa Rubisi mm-hmm. was 17 and her mom wasn't coming her to the filming of the movie. But she was at the time dating Jason Lee, who was then a 22 year old professional skateboarder before he got into movies. He was a skateboarder. That's the yeah. most surprising part of this so far. Yeah, he was in a he was in a Sonic Youth music video. He was really cool. Her mom made Jason Lee her legal guardian and sent them both to Austin so that she could be on the movie. (laughs) Okay, so honestly, when I was probably 13, 14, I would read about this happening with not Marissa Rabisi specifically, but like young actresses who had like their boyfriend or something became their guardian or like some oddball thing. Yeah, emancipation or like your your manager becomes your guardian all this stuff where it's just like the ripest, sweetest fruit for potential abuse. Yeah, right. Like, I'm not saying anything about Jason Lee, but like, I look at that as like someone who's now like thinking about having kids and I'm like, no, thank you. But as a teenager, you like, I just, I remember looking at that kind of situation and being like, I'm in charge. I'm in control of myself. If I sever myself from my parents, then it is smooth sailing out of this harbor. I do not see a downside. I would have found the creepiest, worst guardian in that situation based on my track <laughs> history. I will say she speaks she speaks in retrospect very, very highly of her love and adoration and not weirdness of that relationship. But yeah, you could see that going poorly. Right. Because like you, there are lots of, of perfectly wonderful relationships where someone is below legal age and someone is above it. But it's also... You know, there's also the other kind. Totally. (laughs) Well, number one, we don't have to get into the whole Scientology element of that particular version of it. But um, number two, emancipation is such an incredible, like, flaming misnomer for what that version Mm. of the scenario is. There's no there's no worse word, really, that you could use. Sarah, can you talk about uh, our friend Matthew McConaughey in this movie? Matthew McConaughey is, I think his character and Parker Posey's character are, to me, the most iconic characters Mm. seen from afar if you have not seen this movie. And he, of course, is the author of the now iconic quote, that's what I love about high school girls. I get older, they stay the same age. Which, like, they discuss in the movie that that's creepy. Someone's like, Wooderson, you're going to get arrested for statutory rape or something. Which seems wild that they had that awareness that they put in yes. the movie. Yes. I mean, this is a weirdly self-aware movie in a lot of ways, I think, um, which I assume also had to do with if a script is so weird to begin with, then you might as well have the weirdness of, like, awareness of creepy social mm. issues and stuff. But so Matthew McConaughey plays Wooderson, who is a guy who graduated from the high school that these this current crop of kids goes to 
He graduated a few years ago, an indeterminate number of years ago. He's working for the city and L-I-V-I-N. He is the kind of character who like moment to moment is kind of wobbling on the cusp of like a little bit sad and actually has things kind of figured out. Because I feel like if this movie has a moral, it's like, don't bow down to authority, get Aerosmith tickets, slow ride, (laughs) take it easy. And it's a thin line between total failure and perfect mastery. (laughs) (laughs) Wooderson is very zen. And he's also a pathetic figure. Well, it's like if, if you get if you go too slow, you can't steer anymore. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, his lines and his sort of thing are what people would sort of walk around quoting to each other and stuff. And still, it still is that way. And it's also the only thing he's ever done where everyone who ever talks about it says how brilliant he was you know like the, hmm. I've never heard anybody say an unkind word about his performance in that movie whereas every hmm. other movie he's ever been in it's like people are pretty critical of him well Dallas Buyers Club this and Dallas Buyers Club are Matthew McConaughey's greatest movies yeah <laughs> <laughs> he shouldn't leave the state is what you're saying it's yin and yang <laughs> I've watched this movie probably as much as I've watched Clueless. (laughs) So I've watched this movie a whole lot. And I remember when I started to take the turn of noticing Matthew McConaughey's character in the movie, because when I was younger, Hmm. I related to all of the kids and I knew a Matthew McConaughey character, but like, I still like, it even took me a long, longer time into like my mid twenties before I was like, Oh, this guy's in this role. And I don't even see him as McConaughey in this movie. I just like see him, see him as the character. I remember like finally starting to recognize him and then be a little alarmed on the kid's behalf. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Stay away away from this guy. Yeah. I I remember that turn finally happening. And one of the things, this is another embarrassing fact about myself. I used to listen to the Doors live album all the time. Me too. Which one? Alive? She cried, or uh, or it's like the what? It's like the green cover, and like he. It's just like Morrison's on the front, kind of. Uh, it was the only live album I could find for the longest time. That's where "All Right, All Right, All Right" comes from. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's right. Except I think there were there were four all right. There were four in the in the live. Yeah, exactly. And he just took that. Didn't they? I think they cover Gloria on that record. Yes, he says "Dead Cat, Dead mm. Rap." Yeah, and it goes into this prolonged sexual description and I just vividly remember being in the car being driven by my mom while listening (laughs) to that and he's like wrap your legs around my neck you know like (laughs) he's a poet mom just trying to listen to some music every few years I I put on a Doors album and I wait to like find them sort of cheesy and annoying and it never happens. It has never happened. Like, I still in my heart love and want to be Jim Morrison, just like screaming my whole ass off. You are a mix of, of Marissa Ribisi's character in this movie and Jim Morrison. Like, that's who you've landed as as a human. Oh, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> You're the Thank Jim you. Morrison of Marissa Ribisi's characters. <laughs> <laughs> like, to me, the beauty of Jim Morrison is that, like, so when I was in high school, I had the, I think, pretty iconic Jim Morrison poster that says, Jim Morrison, American poet. Yes. And then it's because Jim Morrison <laughs> and his nips. <laughs> it was cool because he was a poet. 
And it's cool. You can look at a poet's nips. Yeah. What's cooler than a poet's nips? <laughs> I want one that says a T.S. Eliot. Just nips. <laughs> no, nowhere near as iconic. <laughs> so, like, the thing I didn't really consider before reading reading this book is, like, Linklater's battle to make this movie well sounds like it was hell. Yeah. Mm. The story is it got picked up by Universal. It promised to be made for under $6 million. And there was like an executive who had a clause that basically said he could at one point in his career pick a movie that cost under $6 million. And as long as it didn't cost more, he could get it made. So that's how it got made. And then Universal was like, yeah, that's fine. And then they had a slate of movies that didn't do well that year. And so they immediately got super fixated on this doing well well they had an executive on set who like link later would like get into physical fights with on a regular basis to to make them or or who like they would like punch walls around each other like because this guy didn't want swearing but they wanted like boobs in the movie like there was like a whole that style of thing there's no boobs in this movie are there nary a boob yeah wow it's like the evil dad thinking about him in this fight and it being represented also in the narrative of the movie is fascinating because like he's this guy who just wants he is pink like he just wants to make this thing get through do the thing when we see O'Banion smashing his paddle that's link later that's his fuck you to the studio and if you freeze frame it, you can see O'Banion's paddle turn into a large, full-on hard-on. It, oh, by the way, it sounds like Affleck really enjoyed hitting those kids with the paddle and, oh and kept, like, quote, like, missing his whiff and kept hitting the kids intentionally. Oh, Ben. It's like when you hear about actors asking for one more take of the make-out scene. <laughs> I, th- I don't think we got it that time. Which happened with Wiggins. I was, I was watching Bill. <laughs> Madison recently and like apparently Adam Sandler also was like really whipping those dodgeballs at those kids (laughs) in the dodgeball scene yeah I guess the freshman the freshman uh actors were terrified it's Affleck and then what's that other dude's name who talks like he's from Boston but he's not he's in Goodwill Hunting oh Cole Cole Hauser oh yeah they were just like those two were fucking terrified (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think when I was watching this of how old Ben Affleck is and I guess he was like 20 yeah there's a nice spread in this movie of like young actors who like look like they're in eighth grade look like they're in 12th grade like have that quality of like actual high schoolers look wildly different ages based on how they're aging in those moments of their lives which goes all over the place and like Affleck definitely represents that group of high school boys who don't just look like full-grown men they look like men with like factory jobs and wives (laughs) and kids that they hit the oldest actor lied about his age so Sasha Jensen who's the what the guy who's not pink or those guys or or the the, overalls guy yeah the overalls guy he was 26 and lied and said he was 22 and then on Mm. set got in a relationship with like a 17 year old for a minute and got out thankfully Mm. also Mila Jovovich is in this movie just wandering around, just doing her thing. Yeah. Well, she married that guy on uh, that guy who was her opposite, Sean Andrews. That implausibly handsome supermodel guy. Who everybody hated. He would apparently he would go around the hotel that they were staying at, cut up his sheets, and then try to sell them to staff, telling them that he was going to be famous someday. <laughs> Oh, my God. And they were like, you owe us the cost of a sheet, sir. <laughs> so, who, Sarah, your character, your character you relate most with is Cynthia, I assume. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, really the whole 
the whole newspaper staff, I feel like. I also, I gotta say, I love how they dressed Anthony Rapp in a totally plausible way for a high school boy who hasn't figured out that having like white hair and white skin and just big glasses will make him look like a scary ghost. <laughs> um. <laughs> I, th- I feel like he's in that phase where you're like, I can't do anything about my appearance. It's just, <laughs> it's just how I look. Except wear button-ups. Sean, Sean you're, you relate most to the newspaper staff, I assume? Um, I definitely vacillate between them and the younger kids, actually. Like, Hirschfelder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely... Mm. Just the, not, not so much the, the Wiley Wiggins guy, because he is the one who, like... Scored, you know, he's. The, I don't mean sexually, though. Sort of that too. Though he did, although I guess Hirsch did also. I just mean that, like, he won the, you know, the rising freshman lottery mm. and got to hang out with mm. all the cool kids and was like, he was just automatically in. Whereas those other guys are like, yeah, I guess let's go to the dance. Like, I don't know why we would do that, but okay, mm. just hapless, you know. But still with a sense of innocence and yearning. That's what I was. That's what my life was like back then. When I was in eighth grade, I just did not leave the house. So I have no one really, truly to identify with, you know, because like plot only happens if you like stop writing Farscape fan fiction (laughs) and convince your dad to take you somewhere. I've been rereading Carrie because our Shining episode sent me on a Stephen King bender. And something that I feel like Carrie really expresses and that Stephen King really knows. This happens in all kinds of places, but it's definitely a small town high school thing where like you cannot change your status ever, ever, ever. Like if you are deemed a loser in the first grade, then you will be a loser until the day you graduate and there is nothing to be done about it. And if you fight against it, it will only make you more pathetic. You just have to give up. And I feel there's something about this movie also that to me, maybe this is kind of the most optimistic and like the most sweet thing about it is that like these kids actually have mobility within their social groups. Like you can be a paddled eighth grader who like just kind of drifts in and the other kids like decide that you're cool because you're not acting egregiously uncool at that moment, basically. Right. You're you're willing to go and like grab someone a beer. Yeah. So well, I guess you're all right. I guess I won't beat the shit out of you with a stick. God, like exactly like that's how like I was like, such a fucking pleaser at eighth, seventh and eighth grade. I was really lucky. My high school was eighth grade combined with the high school, which was terrifying for the eighth grade. Oh, wow. And I don't know why, but like I missed the first couple of days of my first days of school. And so all the kids were paired with like an older sibling, like a like a senior who would basically watch out for them and make sure that they didn't get their asses kicked in one way or another. And I don't know how that worked out for everybody, but I ended up with the coolest girl in school who didn't have a kid either, but like I met her at a party over the summer and I was so lucky to get that. And that like saved my ass in so many different ways. And then I was just like as much as humanly possible, a pleaser so that anyone around her wouldn't 
beat the shit out of me because like all the men just felt like a physical existential threat. And I'd be like, I'll get you a beer. Like, I'll get you what you want. Like, whatever, whatever you need. Were you like a giant eighth grader? Like, were you, when did you become your present size? I was six two. Yeah, I was like six feet tall in eighth grade. It's real. it's weird to be that big at that age. It is strange. Between sixth and seventh grade, I became that tall. I relate most to the newspaper crew in the biggest way, but I also relate. And I think it's because of that opportunity I had when I was young and just out of dumb luck, I relate to Pink, who I was never that cool at all, but I felt very comfortable in different groups of people and the way that he is sort mm. of he has like a fluid social relationship with everybody but that's also this cool thing that happens with the newspaper crew they're the newspaper crew but they're at the party but it took Wooderson to invite them that's the interesting yeah, that's thing true. they weren't invited they didn't know about it and also like the the thing about pink that lest it go unsaid is that you know when you're in high school everything is easier when you are beautiful yes Yes, 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 yes. He's sort of the quintessence, in the same exact way that Trip in uh, The Virgin Suicides. Mm. Oh, yeah. He's so good looking that it's sort of like, I mean, it's not who cares, but it's also like, you know, if an ugly, dumpy person was to say, I refuse to sign this pledge. You know, the, te- the, the team would not have been like, come on, man. Don't you want to be a champion with us? Don't you want to be uh, uh, the guy we like the most? This is going to be my remake. Dazed and confused, but everyone's ugly. Yeah. In terms of movies set in an era, like, how does this one feel to you? Because I think this can easily be very pandery. You know, like it's it's music, you know, it's things you recognize, you like it. Yeah, I will say that the music selections are really, really choice Mm. for the film to start with Sweet Emotion in that way. Like Sweet Emotion is a big hit Mm -hmm. song, but it's not like it's still a surprise, but it's the perfect opening. And there again, I I really vividly remember that there's that sort of long, slow, Mm. almost before the big, uh, you know, entrance. And I just remember the whole audience sort of you really felt like they were we were all like rising out of our seats because it's like oh my god this is perfect like that um and same with you know like slow ride and free ride and um and all the other rides um (laughs) but the songs are really great it's not like it's for sure not my favorite kind of music but it is the kind of music that when it comes on you turn it up you know, in mm. Sarah's, we were talking about stranglehold is in the movie not once but twice. Like, yeah. stranglehold, yes. like that's a song they put in this. That's movie. a great song to just crank up when you're on the freeway and you have some, some miles ahead of you. And also in the screenplay, the first thing that he writes is like, we hear the opening of Sweet Emotions. So, yeah. like, that was like always. <laughs> like integral it's like we cannot begin this movie any other way and i'm sure that like you know if his back was to the wall he could have found something else but like pop music and soundtracks to me the sort of pinnacle of that is like a movie changing the way you hear a song forever after you know martin scorsese does that a lot for me and like yeah i think i'm gonna hear sweet emotion differently forever after hearing it that way in movies that are sort of conspicuously set in an era American Graffiti is another I mean those are good examples of that kind of early late 50s early 60s music but it's you know 
none of them are my favorite version of those songs. But oftentimes, I mean, the way they get it wrong is like it's a movie in the 80s and like the guy goes into a nightclub and everyone's there and it's playing, you know, How Soon Is Now by the Smiths. <laughs> but they only play the chorus and then it sort of, you know, dissolves into they're playing, I don't know, uh, Paradise City by, you <laughs> yeah, know, totally. Guns N' Roses or whatever. And it's like, but you know, those two things would never coexist. And also... It's, it, clearly, it's just like they're signifiers rather than actual artifacts, mm, right? And I think I think this movie does not do that. I think the movie gets it gets it really right, right? Seriously, like, what would these characters be choosing right. for themselves, and what would they have physical access to? Right. The luxury this movie had, and this is what what made the studio I think pissed at Linklater so much, is that he got the whole cast together in Austin for three weeks before making the movie, mm. and he made it so that the, I mean. Obviously, they didn't have cell phones. So that wasn't going to be an issue. But he made it so they could only listen to music from the era. Mm. I think what makes this movie work in a way that, like, I, I actually like American Graffiti a lot. But, like, I don't feel like like there's chemistry between the characters. I feel like it's all pastiche, you know. And this, mm. right. I feel the relationship between these people. And even in places, like, apparently, like, Parker Posey was on a soap opera at the time. And so she missed the, like, three-week <laughs> bonding ses- session. So she got in late. Hmm. And, like, that's actually beneficial to the tension that she has with all of these characters. Like, everything by way of how the movie's constructed, it looks as authentic as it is, and that's great. But the, like, authentic emotion that runs throughout the cast and runs throughout the environment is like the thing that I think makes it not just like, ah, the seventies, the sweet emotion. (laughs) But yeah, I guess, I don't know I think that like why we keep coming back to teen movies partly and why I still love fame and why I, you know, am always asking for, you know, better teen media is because like teenagers have the gift of like, asking for Mm. more in a way that adults can do also we just kind of stop doing it often with time because we get hurt too much and we stop you know we just stop having or stop admitting that we have these these crazy radical sweet emotions (laughs) 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 right and and our and our own idea of what art even is at all has to be elastic because it has to contain what they respond to, which is a super hard Mm. lesson for many very self-serious adults to ever get anywhere near. I mean, that's to me, that's why I think that like this movie existing is brilliant because like a lot of kids Mm. understood this movie to be a teen movie and they got an Altman movie. Right. Yeah. Oh my God, it's Nashville. It's teen Nashville. (laughs) Yes. (gasps) That's an amazing switcheroo that happened. Like how many kids got into movies because they were expecting whatever, like Save the Last, not that, that came out later, but they were expecting something else and then they got teen Nashville and they must have their fucking minds blown. Like that's how I felt when I saw Rushmore. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't ever considered the Altman connection though. It's really vivid now that you say it that sort of thing that people have defended and i have defended for decades was like the more you know when i watch these films again i'm like well it wouldn't be terrible to know what they were actually saying but um, <laughs> yes it would my girlfriend was was quick to point that out i was like you gotta see this and we went and saw it and she's like is it is it on purpose that you can't understand what anybody is saying ever yeah. <laughs> But uh, the thing that I like a lot about, I mean, I haven't read much of the Melissa Maris book, but um, I have it. And so he wrote 
a script, obviously, but then what was actually filmed, the characters actually they evolved hugely based on the actual the actors themselves. And so his work with mm. the actors changed the characters, but also the script, but also the tone, but also like every element of it. And that was something that he was real that was really important to him, which also sort of brings out the question of the sort of unchanging nature of being young. Hmm. The actors were obviously a bit older, but like they still had access to their 16 mid-teens. You know, it didn't necessarily matter that it was the 70s because there are certain things that are just like immutable truths. Yeah, I guess for one of the characters, I can't remember who it is, but for one of the characters, she had like a feminist bent and he like met with her and he gave her, mm-hmm. he gave, I think he gave her a copy of The Second Sex or something, something like that. And, mm. and she's like, well, first of all, like that blew my mind. Like I read that book and it like changed my <laughs> life from that point on. Cause Link later gave me this to prep. Wow. But then she's also like, he did that with 23 kids. Yeah. Wow. He gave them the seeds for their characters and let them go. Like I was wrong about emancipation and stuff as a teen, but this was always my feeling of like, wouldn't it be great just to make a movie with a group of people? Cause like you would learn more than at school. Yeah. And I, I do think that was correct. Yeah. Even the backstage, you know, like the bonus features look like they were far more interesting than most of my high school experiences mm. <laughs> in or out of class. Yeah. I think, you know, I think the thing that also I anticipated making me sad for so many years about this and that also makes me a little bit or more in the past would make me a little bit sad when I would, you know, you would learn these like great, you know, behind the scenes stories about kids working together and bonding and coming together for, you know, for a temporary thing was just that like, I really hadn't experienced like solidarity in a, in a group of fellow teens. Like I had individual friends mm-hmm. eventually, but I really didn't know what it was like to feel like you were part of any kind of team or like a group that was like, we're this group mm-hmm. and we're all friends with each other. And I just was like, if I can't have it, I kind of don't want to see it necessarily because <laughs> it'll bum me out. And like, yeah. and I guess to me, the kind of the positive coda for that is that like I did have those experiences. Like I didn't get to have them when I was a teenager, partly because I was kept so fucking busy acting like where I went mm. to college was going to have have any effect on my life and I don't think I should have done that but also I believed what adults told me and adults lied to me a lot back then I did feel that like I do now have I get to have like the feeling of running around being friends with groups of people my own age having adventures and like my point is that like a lot of the things that we associate with the joy of being a teen are like maybe things that are accessible to teens because they have more free time than adults do. Although, but then some of them, sometimes you are under more pressure as a teen than at any other time in your life. And so if you missed stuff, then like, do it now. That's why I love the movie Booksmart so much. Yeah. Despite all of the, like, figuring out how to navigate high school, I had no actual connections in high school with anyone I went to high school with. Mm. And I have really spent (laughs) the last 20 years concretely the last five years making up for lost time like Mm. finding friends finding people that make that make sense for me like finding the stuff that I didn't have then and I don't look at it consciously like that but I know for a fact that I am Mm -hmm. making up for the lost time because I when people are like this is my best friend from high school I'm like are you 
fucking serious? How did that happen? <laughs> you know, it's almost like a superhuman thing that they did. <laughs> it's funny because I am one of those people, but I guess like still yeah. feel resentful and unlucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting it later in life and realizing that while some of the experiences are fun and rewarding and good, that so much of it is just simply an act of will. Like you say, Mm. this is a group. You say you're all, you know, you have solidarity, but it might not necessarily remain true Mm. forever or for long. And so in a way, it's like it's a thing you're creating together or in your own mind. Mm. But even knowing that, it doesn't ever take away the sting verging on agony of of having not had it when others mm. had it right in fucking front yeah. of you. <laughs> yes. That's but that's my experience of like adulthood. Oh man. All right, so we don't there is no dad aside from that Sean Andrews dad in this movie. And he's just an aside character. Mm-hmm. But the coaches are definitely dad, dadish. We know the coaches are dads in this yeah. movie. <laughs> O'Banion is a future alcoholic stepfather. Sure, a lot of the men in this movie are. Who is the uh, who is the daddy? It's kind of Wooderson's the daddy. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. Make your case, though. Because he does sort of ride that line between kind of holy and pathetic, and you know, like super objectionable, and also super attractive in his way. But also the interesting thing to me is that he's sort of like, he's kind of almost a Fagin character because, <laughs> because he does, like he shows up and he just like, you know, bestrides the pool hall, but he keeps making sure that the kids are still like hanging around him. You know, he makes sure to be like taking care of them and like you you want like smoking them out and giving them a beer and making sure they know where the party is and stuff. And he doesn't get any handkerchiefs or pocket watches out of the deal, but he does he does get the kids to ride with him to buy Aerosmith tickets and it does seem like there's a certain he he needs them too. Mm-hmm. And that and there's something nice about that. I think they they sense that and they're not yet worldly enough to know why that is a weakness. Mm. Yeah. I mean, when I was in high school, there were like three or four of him. They just did not know how to not be in high school. Right. Or they had an unwillingness to move beyond that cast. And then they were just yeah. like, I, I don't want to. It seems absurd to go further than that. Yeah. I, I knew I knew a lot of those guys, I think, now that I'm looking back on it. And then we also have Pink's line, which is, you know, if I ever start calling these these days the best years of my life, remind me to kill myself. But that's real, too. Like, that is a big part of what the movie is about. It's like a rejection of it's not a rejection of nostalgia, but it's a rejection of that um, pre nostalgia. The thing that makes Mm. I think that's way more prevalent in today's culture than it was then, because everything Mm. is archived now. And you start reminiscing about something that happened four minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. Not to like ream Instagram too much because, you know, I don't think it's responsible for the ills of our society any more than anything else. But like Instagram has created a world where like you will potentially shape where you go, what you eat, what Airbnb you Mm -hmm. get, whatever, based on like how it will represent aesthetically, which I don't think is like... I don't diagnose that as like selfish or attention seeking or, or, or self-obsessed or whatever people want to call it. I think it's like we all really want to feel sure that we are spending our time well and living our best lives and like raking in all the happiness we can get and like having 
evidence that we're constantly compiling that we're doing that is like a nice way to feel more secure about it. There's a big value, a premium placed in like in life or in the world on the thing of thinking for yourself. But mm. I think for a lot of people that causes an enormous amount of anxiety, especially in a world where we see people sort of representing thinking for themselves in a way that like makes people naturally want to do that too. It's in this movie where every time Pink says something, you know, like rebellious or anti-establishment-y, the other football players all look at him like, yeah. <laughs> what? what did you say? Like, and, and then they kind of look at each other like, do I think that? Am I a person? And that is really authentically teenage. Like I, I, that more than maybe mm, any other sure. thing is that thing of like, mm. you know, you're wearing the outfit. You're like you broadcast to everyone that these are your best friends and you're like showing all the yeah. signs. But like inside, you have no fucking idea what's going on or what you want or who you are or what, you know, what will happen. And that's, you know, like mm. learning to be all right with that seems like as much of the, you know, where's the movie about that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. My daddy in this movie is Mitch's older sister, whose name I forget, but who is just cool. She's just, that's her whole thing. She's a cool lady. She initially kind of sets uh, some some bad things in motion by asking the seniors to go easy on her brother, which means that they w open a whole keg of whoop ass. Yeah, what was she thinking? From such a like <laughs> protective sisterly yes. place. That's a good, that's a good impulse. Poor execution. Yeah. And then of course, you know, it, it goes haywire. And then he shows up at the same party she's at and is kind of, and like, this is the moment when he graduates to her turf basically. And is, a teenager the way she's a teenager now as opposed to like little league teenager and there's a, a moment that I love where she's just like I yeah. guess I'm gonna have to get used to showing to you showing up to the same social functions as me he's just like okay and then she like buys him a freebie from their mom when he comes home at dawn smelling like beer after the first day of the eighth grade you're like okay the 70s did have some good things going on didn't they <laughs> and i like that she's allowed that grace moment of being angry like yeah. being pissed and resenting him it's just for like a second but you know because yeah. she got the brunt of being you know the first kid yeah and because she was a girl, and I'm sure parents generally have a lot easier time letting their 14-year-old boy come home from shenanigans than their 14-year-old girl. Although a 14-year-old girl also gets to do that in this movie. We haven't even talked about Sabrina, but she's just like also a very cool, cool cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is Linklater after reading this book. Mm. There were so many opportunities for him to not make this movie. And he made this movie. Like there were so many things that stood between a great movie being made that could have made it a mediocre movie or a studio influence movie that like everyone would have been like, it could have been great, but you know, the studio gets in the way and like everyone's kind of understanding of that. Like he did not let that happen. And that's a phenomenal. He protected his eggs. He did. And he, and his kids, he protected his kids. Like, it sounds like that was important to him. Like that's, yeah. and he was like 30 year old dude. I mean, the idea that he was 30 is amazing. Cause it's Nuts. very poised. Yeah. Disgusting. Honestly. I'm sure, I know. <laughs> Who does the fuck does he think he is? <laughs> you know, the, the studio 
influence whatever I mean clearly would have gone more towards like a harder kind of sexuality and also like a mm. a more sort of revolting kind of yes. comedy and I would say that you know the arc of justice is long but it winds up at like super bad yeah. in that and this in this particular <laughs> regard because it does like there's no mm. there's no whiff of somebody like murdering a sex worker <laughs> accidentally or something like that I don't remember what happened in that movie but in my mind it's that yeah so yeah just thinking about Linklater as the daddy it's like I do think you have an even more profound responsibility if you're trying to shepherd a movie into existence that like uses the concept of teenagers in a non-exploitative way and also like has young performers many of whom are you know doing their first professional role like some of these kids were extremely seasoned but a lot of them weren't and like protecting them in that like that's oh my god the pressure yeah there is a whole conversation that we haven't had it and it's hard obviously because there's so many people in this movie or whatever but there's a whole conversation we haven't had about the fact that like women for how many great women there are in this movie, like women are secondary in this movie. Oh yeah. This movie is about teenage boys and the, in the teenage women who happen to be there. They have parallel adventures. They are girlfriends, older sisters, and Marissa Rabisi. Isn't that a Waylon Jennings song? everybody that is it for this week's episode of you are good thank you so much to sean nelson for joining us this week and thank you of course to carolyn kendrick who produces 
our shows and makes them sound so great every week. And on weeks like this one, provides wonderful music to accompany the episode. This week, Carolyn put together an original song called Girlfriends, Older Sisters, and Marissa Rabisi, which is from the perspective of Wooderson, Matthew McConaughey's character, a few years down the road. If you were to realize that his behavior had been questionable at best, <laughs> he's retrospectively pining for his time with Marissa Rabisi's character, who Carolyn says she would like to believe is busy being a writer in an exciting city and too busy to ever think about Matthew McConaughey's Wooderson. I love it so much. I'm so glad that it is a part of this show. Thank you so much, Carolyn. You can find Carolyn's music at carolynkendrick.com. Oh, and thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for providing beats for our episodes. You can find us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. You can find us uh, on Patreon and support us there if that's something that's in the cards for you at patreon.com slash wiredads. I think that's it. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so glad to have you and we look forward to uh, connecting with you again next week. Take care. <laughs>